Good morning. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling. I, I just want to scream and yell, but I won't do that. Ah, do it. Do no, a little bit. No, Come on. I'm not doing it. Why? I'm not. God, it's awful. What a game. The yeah. best game of forever last night. Best game ever. Are you declaring that? One of the best games in forever. I don't know if it's, I think it was the best game I've ever been at. Yeah. Last night, the Jets are down 3 nothing after the first period, and everybody's looking at one another in bewilderment. I took one of the boys last night. We'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. And uh, he said, Dad, I think we're done. I said, well, then I guess we might as well go home then. <laughs> wow, I don't want to go home. Uh, yeah, that, 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 be careful what you say, boy. Because uh, I'm calling you out on it. Anyway, uh, a magical night last night in downtown Winnipeg on so many levels. Uh, absolutely thrilled. Thanks for forcing me to go. Uh, sincerely. I'm glad that you, you <laughs> insisted that I go last night. Well, what are you going to do on Thursday? Because you didn't get home till after 11 last night? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, man. I don't know. Just anyway, in, and uh, for those uh, who uh, are, yeah. just for, the, for you listening right now, the show starts at 6, but... Greg rolls in here at about 4, 4.30, as do I, and the alarm clock goes off early. At 2.45. <laughs> so if you're getting in at 11 o'clock for a 7 p.m. start, 8.30. Uh, very quickly translates into 12.15, 12.30. So two hours sleep is not a good idea. So if I can sort out a way, figure out a way to get four or five hours sleep prior to the game, Thursday night. If I can make that happen, then I will go. Well, you can, one, you can sleep when you're dead. Uh, two, we're actually going to speak this week to a sleep expert on this very subject because we know that there's a very good chance that not just you, Greg, but you listening right now might be a little sweepy-weepy on uh, Friday morning. So we'll have that conversation. We also have a concert announcement, an event announcement coming up after the 7 o'clock news, so stand by for that. Make sure you're tuning in after Global News at 7 o'clock with Jeff Braun. You handed me something this morning. The headline here is, Retailers Seek Change to Goofy Canada Day Rule. Yeah. I love the fact that the word goofy is in this headline from Absolutely. the free press. I think it's funny myself. And essentially what the law says right now, as will happen this year, Canada Day falls on a Sunday. Okay. And because of the Retail Act in Manitoba, it will force retailers to close on the Monday, July 2nd. Oh. So the retail council is saying, hold on, hold on. This is a little silly. Let's fix this. People will be lots of pent-up demand on a long weekend, and we want to be able to be open on the Monday. So there is a proposal for meetings with the province to sit down and sort this out before the July long weekend, the Canada Day celebrations, July 1st, which is as mentioned, a Sunday this year. So when the the holiday is on the Sunday, are the retailers closed on the Sunday as well, or would they be closed? On, to... Closed on the Sunday, yeah. So they want they'd be closed Sunday and then the Monday too. My, if I'm reading, if I'm reading it correctly, I believe that's the case. Wow. Yeah, and yet and yet the malls are often open on many other holidays. Yes. So yeah, this is goofy is the operative word on this one. No, that goofy 
Canada Day legislation. Yep. In fact, it's even goofier than we thought. Okay. It's not two days closed in a row. In fact, retailers would be open on the Sunday from nine to six. So they'd be open on, on the holiday. Correct. But and then closed on the second. That's dumb. That is dumb. So we're going to uh, get to the bottom of this and and find out what's uh, happening in order to get rid of this. This absolutely uh, lunacy. This absolute lunacy. How's that? Indeed. Now let's segue to the ice hockey. Let's uh, hear from the captain of the Winnipeg Jets first and foremost. It's real too. You know, our, our crowd noise is from our crowd. It's not from speakers or from music or for live bands or whatever. It's that's people making noise, and that's uh, that goes right through your body. And when they're cheering for you, and and our team gets gets rolling downhill like that, you know, um, it creates a ton of momentum for us. We've, we've fed off it even in the regular season, um, but you know you get that crowd going like that in the playoffs, and I think every single guy gets a little extra jump in their step. So as we know, not only inside LMTS Place, outside thousands of fans gathering, which is really going to be, as uh, Phil Aubrey said this morning when we were chatting about the game, one for the ages. Yeah. This is a game that uh, if you watched it, if you were there, you are not soon going to forget Yeah, indeed. Where you were. I, uh, and Kelly Moore will have more details coming up in sports at 625. But in watching that, uh, some of the second period, uh, I saw Big Buff score his goal. And then I went away for a couple of minutes, come back, and suddenly, so that was when it, it was 3-2. And then suddenly it's 3-3, and I had, I, I had to back it up, and I kept hitting reverse, reverse, reverse. And I think, when do they score this goal? 14 seconds later. So uh, the roof must have just almost blown off of that arena. Last it was night. absolutely electric. It was, you could hear a pin drop at some points in the first period when Nashville jumped out to their 3 nothing lead. The Jets were really tentative in the first period. And I was tentative as well. What did I text you? What did I text you yesterday before the game? I told you I had a horrible premonition. You did. I that- told you that I felt... Like there was going to be a shutout, and it would not be in Winnipeg's favor. Yeah, and that's the way it was looking at 3 nothing Nashville after the first period. The Jets really got nothing going whatsoever. Connor Hellebuck looked a little looked a little off in that first period. And so I asked, uh, last night Alexander got to go to the game. Your son? Yes. One of your sons? One of my two uh, twin boys. I, uh, Are they identical, by the way? They're not. Okay. They're fraternal. And so, and their love for the Jets isn't identical either. I think they both really, really love them, but Alexander's a little more vocal about it. Okay. And so that's why I decided to take him last night. Okay. Uh, Was it a lottery? Like No, they, no, I just kind of picked him. Okay. <laughs> so Brendan might not be talking to me for the next few days for all I know. <laughs> uh, he had to go stay at Grandma and Grandpa's house last night, and uh, it was something else. Uh, hug my kid more times last night than I do in a week typically, although we are kind of a huggy family. Uh, he was genuinely thrilled. After 3 nothing. he said, I don't know, Dad, I don't think the Jets have it tonight. I said, well, I guess we'll just go home then. <laughs> That'll, no, that'll learn you. Well, no, 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 no. And so uh, obviously we stuck around, and he's uh, thrilled that we did. My dad always reminded me that Billy Mozienko, Winnipeg's own, once scored three goals in 21 seconds as a member of the Chicago Blackhawks, and that's always stuck with me ever since I was a kid. That's why I don't leave games early. That's why I don't give up on the home team because anything can happen. It can happen very quickly. 
particularly in hockey, and we saw it last night. So with your son, uh, this is his first playoff experience. Yes. You've taken him to games before? Yes, he loves to go to the games. Okay. Um, and so on Thursday, is this a, a situation where you might bring your other boy? I don't know. I think that's going to be pretty late. That's way, way too late. They're usually getting ready to go to bed. Yeah, well, at, at eight thirty, Dad's got to get up early on yeah, Friday. Yeah, well, Dad's still deciding whether or not he's going to go to the game on Thursday. <laughs> there so is I, no decision to be made. There, no, no, really, you must go. I must go. You must. You, you will know, regret it. I know, but I might regret it on Friday. So what? Dramatically. So you suffer for a couple hours. Yeah, well, you know what? You're a sweet man, and I may have to take you up on this. But I told Brendan, you know what? If I was you, I'd be waiting for your game for the next round. Well, what if the Jets don't win? What kind of attitude is that? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I said, well, if if, if something happens, the Jets don't win this series, then you'll get to go to a a, a game in the first round of the playoffs next year. And he was pretty, pretty solid with that decision. So we'll see how it pans out. So Jerry's playing Snap the Power. And the reason why, of course, is one of the biggest stories of the last 24 hours involves your power and your pocket. Manitoba Hydro rates are going up, but not by as much as they were hoping for. The Public Utilities Board has approved an average increase of 3.6% for electricity rates. That begins June 1st. Hydro wanted a 7.9% increase, which would have provided the Crown Corporation with an extra $125 million per year. At 3.6%, it ends up being about $60 million. Yesterday afternoon and evening on the news on 680 CJOB with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham, which runs 4 to 7 p.m. Monday to Friday, we heard from a number of people offering different perspectives. Calvin Shepard is the president and CEO of Manitoba Hydro. Well, you know, the uh, the PUB uh, uh, concluded uh, a year-long uh, hearing here, and, um, I mean, we had put forward uh, uh, what we felt was a, a pretty uh, proactive uh, plan to manage our debt and uh, and to, uh, in fact, reduce the amount of debt that we would need to incur over the next number of years. Um, clearly, the PUB felt uh, a different approach uh, uh, to managing that debt was warranted, and, and so they awarded a, a lower rate increase. So uh, practically what it means is that uh, it means uh, a lot longer time frame uh, of lower rate increases uh, uh, likely with more risk, more exposure to uh, different types of business risk, including rising interest rates. They also spoke with Don Leach, who is president and CEO of the Business Council of Manitoba. Well, a 3.6% increase is is good news for consumers in the sense that you're going to pay less, but it is bad news for hydro. It's bad news for the long-term health of our province. It's bad news for hydro's ability to, to just service their debt. Right now, hydro is already borrowing just to make ends meet. They don't have enough revenue to pay their bills. Uh, That's why we were on record as saying we need something more akin to what hydro was looking for as opposed to the very low, barely rate of inflation that some groups were advocating. Um, We already have the lowest rates virtually in North America. There's only two or three jurisdictions that have lower rates. Uh, Quebec's the only one with lower rates in Canada than us. Uh, that's not to say that the government shouldn't be looking at how you deal with poverty and people who can't afford to pay bills. And that's not just hydro bills, but that's that's rent, that's food, that's everything else. That's an ongoing pressing social issue. 
But we don't think you address that through hydro rates. We think that should be addressed through government policy. And in the long run, hydro is going to need more money or we are jeopardizing the financial position, not just of the corporation, but of the Manitoba government. The PUB also ordered the creation of a new First Nation on-reserve residential customer class, which will not receive an increase in electricity rates in 2018. Richard and Julie spoke to Corey Sheffman, lawyer representing the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs. The unique circumstances of First Nations, and particularly First Nations living on-reserve in Manitoba, means that a special rate class and special rate treatment is necessary uh, for that group of people. Um, You know, there are a number of factors, including the extremely high levels of poverty on reserve. Um, Manitoba reserves have the highest level of child poverty in Canada, Um, as well as the condition of housing on reserve makes it really difficult to, or more expensive to to heat those, uh, those homes. Uh, and, uh, you know, other factors related to the, uh, the realities of getting power and, uh, provi- and paying for power in those communities. But the other issue uh, is reconciliation. And, you know, we hear that word a lot these days. But in this situation, it re- has real meaning. And that's because every megawatt, every watt of power generated by Manitoba Hydro is generated on the traditional lands and waters, the ancestral lands and waters of Manitoba First Nations. And for a long time, Manitoba First Nations have looked in their backyards and seen these giant dams, you know, wrecking their territory and gotten nothing in return for it. We also heard from Byron Williams, Public Interest Law Centre on the sticker shock. Let's go back in time. Rates have been rising at double the rate of inflation since about 2008. Um, So cumulatively, that means hard choices for consumers. It means uh, uh, the choice at the end of the month for some consumers between milk in the fridge or paying the bills. So that's always a harsh impact, but it could have been a lot worse. And we're thankful that there is an evidence-based independent regulator in this province uh, that saw past hydro's hyperbole and look to the evidence, and and we think that is ultimately a good decision for Manitobans. Also a big part of this, the province, meantime, is rejecting one of the recommendations made by the Public Utilities Board regarding Manitoba Hydro. The PUB recommended the province put some of its carbon tax revenue towards Hydro's financial woes. In case you missed it, in Jeff Braun's 630 newscast, Minister of Crown Services Cliff Collins says no. There's still storm clouds on the horizon. You know, we still have facing interest rates. We have the possibility of a drought, and there's also the potential of reduced revenue. And coming up later this morning at 7.45, we're going to speak with Winnipeg Harvest to find out how an increase in hydro rates, how these continued increases will affect them as they move forward. Brett McGarry. Greg Mackling, Sean Lee Vidal, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun, and the omnipresent behind the glass, Jerry. Before we move on to our topic of conversation here, real quick, I deciphered, I think, this text message from a listener who's claiming uh, fault for the Jets falling behind 3-0 against Nashville last night. Confession 
Uh, first period was my wardrobe fault. I got home from work at 7.15, got out of my work clothes, put on my whiteout sweatshirt. Less than three seconds after putting it on, the Predators scored. Maybe my wife washed the sweatshirt in Predators soap. I wore it through the first intermission. I switched to the white NHL jersey. The sweatshirt's not going on Kijiji, but will be burned in the next fire pit party after fire ban is lifted, along with the Leafs cap I won at a social. It's, it's oh. funny, It's funny, Greg. I actually took a, just took a call in the newsroom from a, a listener who's actually claiming credit for the Jets win because she wore her Jets shirt last night. And uh, she did not, but she did not wear her Jets shirt when they, they lost to Nashville. Oh, interesting. In, okay. in game two. Too, so she, you know, she, she believes okay, that lady. her her shirt. Does the lady have a name? Unfortunately, I did not catch her name, I, but she believes there is some some. Her shirt is very lucky. Oh, good. So I told her make like sure that. she wears that shirt on Thursday. Yeah. Don't, don't, have to, to, don't have to stay up late then. There's tons <laughs> of that <laughs> stuff out there. I was a guy on Twitter last night saying he was at the game and he said every I've gone to the bathroom four times at Bell MTS Place. Every time I go to the bathroom, the Jets score. And people are saying, wow. stay in there, we'll send you more beer. <laughs> There's a GoFundMe page now to buy that guy more beer for game four. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk about this as we make our way through the morning. Keep sending our stories and calling in. We really love hearing from you. 780-6868 by talk or by text. And as we mentioned before, the weather, the maker of Gibson Guitar, omnipresent for decades on the music stage, is filing for bankruptcy protection after wrestling with years of debt. A pre-negotiated reorganization plan filed Tuesday will allow Gibson Brands Inc. to continue to operate with $135 million U.S. in financing from lenders. Gibson guitars have been esteemed by generations of guitar legends. After Chuck Berry died, his beloved cherry red Gibson guitar was bolted to the inside of his coffin lid. We want to talk a little bit about our favorite guitar riffs, our favorite guitarists. Should we let uh, the senior and the group go first? Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Kelly Moore, you can't uh, get out of this one. Geez, I, I kind of wonder what music genre I'm going to pick. Country. Just a little. If you've ever been to a Keith Urban concert, uh, this man picks up a guitar and absolutely makes magic. And a, and a close second would be Brad Paisley. I was almost going to grab a clip of he and Paisley playing together, but Brett McGarry always says, no ties! So I just uh, went with no Keith ties. Urban. I do? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no ties. No ties allowed, yeah. Okay. I'm, I making, I'm, I'm making that up. Don't oh, worry okay. about it. Oh. <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was just having a moment where, what did I say? I don't remember. You can see Brett scanning the Rolodex no. of memories going, I don't remember ever saying that. <laughs> SLV? Uh, you know, I struggled with this one. I struggled and I struggled because, you know. your idea? I know. Oh, okay. Oh, no, it, was, it was actually Kelly's idea, this one. But because there's so many there's so many great Canadian bands with, with awesome guitars that have really shaped my formative years, so I thought about, okay, I, you know, uh, like Headstones, Age of Electric, but I thought to go a little bit earlier and choose uh, Phil Comparelli, guitarist for 5440. Okay. That, that is awesome. You, you can't deny that. Yeah, they had some pretty good riffs. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he is no longer with the band. They have a, a replacement guitarist now. I guess he's really not that good after all. <laughs> well, you know, you know, they are getting a little long in the tooth. They've been around since, what, like, 84? Four? Hey, hey, oh, hey. so long in the <laughs> two. Oh. And, and their mandate, 5440's mandate when they got together, um, uh, Neil Osborne, lead singer, had said it was 10 albums. And they have 
well surpassed that. So I I think Phil has... They had a mandate for 10 albums? They did have a mandate of 10 albums. Really? That's a weird rule for a rock band. That is a real weird rule. And they they have definitely passed that. And yeah, Phil, he actually retired from the band in 2005. How hard are you going on this one, Jeff? Are you? Oh, gonna... I'm cranking it up a bit. It's yeah. a gruesome twosome from Slayer, Carrie King, and the late, great Jeff Hanneman. <laughs> Jeff's doing the air drums right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's some uh, just nice light. Light, easy listening for the morning. And that's, like that's their number one riff uh, song called Raining Blood. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy your breakfast, everybody. <laughs> well done, well done. Well, and the great thing, too, I mean, you could hear that there's some wonderful musicianship in that clip. And uh, metal. Did you ever see that documentary? I think it might have just simply been called Metal. Mm, uh, series? Series of documentaries? Yeah. Where, oh, where, yeah. I, I remember there was one scene where Al Gore was... Uh, appearing before, I can't remember the board, but he was trying to get metal. I think they wanted the parental advisory, and there was all kinds of stuff. And D. Snyder from Twisted Sister mm-hmm. uh, put Al Gore in his place. But that documentary referenced the roots of metal, which is very closely tied to symphonic music. Right? That's why metal goes so well together with orchestras. Yeah. So and you and can the, really they often hear it structure it the same way. These metal bands, oh, it's a twelve-minute song that's got like five different sections. And yeah, just like the symphony. Greg? Well, I had to go with Eddie Van Halen. <laughs> Shocker! Little eruption here. Yeah, he's pretty good. I don't know if he's the best in the world, but he's my favorite. Yeah? yeah. He's my number two. I can like I can yeah. really kind of do it with without his antics and his Last time he was here in Winnipeg with uh, Sammy Hagar, he was hammered on stage doing his solo. And oh, man. It was really ugly. It was kind of a fall from grace in my eyes. But uh, Eddie Van Halen always gets my vote. What about you, Jerry? Uh, I went with the doctor, <laughs> Brian May. Oh, of course it would be. The queen. <clears throat> Whenever you listen to Brian May play... You don't hear any of the, the finger slides and stuff that you hear with a lot of guitarists. He plays so cleanly. It's amazing. Oh, look at that little little mix. Uh, Crossfade. Which song is this? That's I Want It All. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. But, I mean, it's just... I, I've seen them in concert twice, and both times, probably the best part of the concert was the Brian May guitar solo, which is usually about 15 minutes long. My word. <laughs> and it's like, it's a religious experience just watching this guy play for 15 minutes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's go, pretty good. Go get a beer then. Brett McGarry? I don't, I don't have a favorite guitarist, and I honestly, I really struggled to think of uh, favorite guitar riff, so I just went with the first one that came to mind, and for me, and it, it's actually sort of loosely tied to your guy, it's this song. Oh, yeah. That's Eddie Van Halen. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's not loosely tied. <laughs> Directly? It's trying to, you know, play it down a little bit. Uh, but yeah, this is, for, I don't know, the, I thought guitar riff, that's what came to mind. And uh, it always makes me smile. Somebody yeah. should have picked Slash because he plays Gibson guitars and yeah, stands to be most affected by this. <laughs> I don't know what, it, what he's going to do in the future. Just retire, I guess, if they he's don't make guitars for him anymore. Up, right? Don't you no. just buy a bunch and put them he in the... probably has a couple more. Is, isn't that opening okay. to Sweet Child of Mine kind of the, one of the first things you learn when you're, you know, learning to play the guitar in junior high? I don't know, is that, it? Yeah. It, yeah. When I, I was going to, to school, it. it was like the big deal. Do you know deal. how to play it? No, I don't. But well, but if, you, if you're the kid who could play the beginning to Sweet Child of Mine, it's an e- it was an easy thing, but you were like the cool kid. Hey, Greg, what is this? This music that we're listening to here. Well, you're probably not old enough, Brett, to remember the Carol Burnett television show. That's Carol Burnett's theme song. The Queen of Comedy. Indeed. Oh, and hey, we, we didn't we say we had a concert announcement? By gosh, we did. <laughs> and hey, Carol Burnett returns to Winnipeg, September 27, Centennial Concert Hall. Tickets are on sale on Monday May 7th at 10 a.m. We do have Beat the Box Office tickets to give away with you, and this is going to be so much fun, an evening of laughter and reflection. The audience is actually going to get to ask questions. Like they used to at the end of the show. She used to have a little bit of a segment, a couple of questions uh, from the live audience at the end of the program, and they were always very entertaining. So the fact that they are incorporating this into the live program, I think, is outstanding. Changes could be coming to our immigration system to stem the flow of illegal migrants into Canada, but Ottawa is not giving any details. The U.S. confirms it is considering a change to the safe third country agreement proposed by Canada. As Global's Michael Couture reports, politics might be behind this play. It's illegal to cross here. Despite the repeated warnings, nearly 100 people are crossing the Canada-U.S. border illegally each day. Worried the numbers will only increase over the summer, Canadian and American officials have started talks to tighten the border and stem the flow of asylum seekers. According to the Department of Homeland Security, they are currently reviewing the proposal made by Canada to amend the Safe Third Country Agreement. But we have no decision to announce at this time. It's the agreement that says any migrant who arrives at a formal Canada-U.S. border crossing is turned away and told to apply for asylum status in the first country they arrived in. Now, Canada reportedly wants it to apply across the entire border, which would mean most asylum seekers would be turned away at the border and likely deported to their home country. The immigration minister tried to downplay the whole thing. There are no formal negotiations with respect to uh, the the Homeland Security says they are looking at a proposal put forward by Canada. How can there, you say there are there, no negotiations? There are no formal they, negotiations. I know, but they are saying that there's a proposal uh, to, on the table. Uh, so what is that proposal? Well, we speak, we speak about all aspects of the border, including safe third country agreement. So there are talks, and the public safety minister shed a little more light on the discussions. There is a, a, a conversation about, about how we make our border uh, both ways. Uh, strong, effective, uh, and and secure. Opposition parties believe this is a purely political play, blaming the entire crisis on the Prime Minister's now famous tweet. 
Our hashtag Welcome to Canada Prime Minister doesn't want to walk his tweet back and alienate NDP voters, so he's happy to no negotiate in secret with the Americans and then hopes that he can blame their delay for his lack of political will. Last year, the bulk of asylum seekers were from Haiti after their protected status expired in the U.S. So who are the people coming in now? The same temporary status of people from El Salvador, Nepal and some African nations is set to expire soon. But there's a new problem officials are now worried about. An e increasing number of Nigerians are going to the U.S. on travel visas, staying there only a few hours and then making the trip north to cross over into Canada. Now officials here say the Americans are aware of the problem and are working to fix it. Recently released scenes from a new film are again raising questions about the use of police equipment in Hollywood productions. Back in January, Mayor Brian Bowman raised his concerns about the use of Air One. That's the city's only helicopter in a movie. Well, it's not the only helicopter in Winnipeg, it's the only police helicopter. But as Global's Amber McGookin explains, it's not the only piece of police equipment playing a starring role. It's the filming of a new Hollywood movie, and the star of the scene, the Winnipeg Police Service's armoured vehicle. The police department's ARV-1 was used in the filming of the movie Nomis last year in Winnipeg with A-list stars Alexandra Daddario and Henry Cavill. Off mark. Winnipeg police wouldn't say how many hours or days it was used or how much, if any, money the Winnipeg Police Service was paid, raising concerns with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. It needs to uh, not distract at all from its operational uses and it needs to be really efficient for taxpayers. Honestly, we need them to be focused on uh, keeping our streets safe uh, rather than uh, uh, making a cool movie scene. Back in January, the police service came under fire for allowing the police helicopter to be used in the filming of a movie in La Salle. For that, police didn't make any money from renting out their chopper. The service also confirmed ARV-1 was also used in three movies in 2016, but details about how long it was unavailable or financial compensation were not provided. The mayor said he will look into the issue. You know, I'm going to look into it a little bit more detail. I might have more to say later, but, you know, right now I would just say the more open and transparency we can have, uh, you know, the, the better. No miss is scheduled for release later this year. Amber McGookin, Global News. Sir Ben Kingsley also in that film. Yeah, that's his second time here in the last probably year and a half or so. Two different projects bringing Sir Ben to uh, Winnipeg. Very cool. And Nathan Fillion uh, as well for a brief period he was here. And I remember, now that I think about it, I remember seeing some of his posts on Instagram where he did not appear to be too happy. To no, not very flattering of the city of Winnipeg. Got a text message here. Someone watching the game last night noticed that Stacey Natras and uh, very early into the anthem last night, the Canadian anthem, put her microphone down and let the crowd do the work last night. Just not just the true north. It was uh, very poetic, very outstanding. Great to be a part of that. Brett, you know, we've had the conversation about the effects of depression on our society. And I've been pretty open and honest about my battles, my personal battles with uh, depression. Uh, the folks at St. Boniface Hospital... Dr. Mandana Matarusta have an outstanding program, something called RTMS. It's repetitive transcranial magnetic, magnetic stimulation, and it can help people dealing with, with depression without medication. Uh, it can be a supplement to 
Talk therapy, it has been proven to be very effective in stimulating nerve cells and changing uh, different function of different parts in the, of the brain using a magnetic coil. Now news, this jumped out off the page at me this morning. Uh, the headline, Toronto researchers testing scalpel-free brain surgery to treat depression. And uh, this could be absolutely revolutionary. It's aimed at people whose depression has been resistant to treatment. And as Global Nationals, Allison Vuknik reports, the promising new procedure has the potential to help people with other illnesses too. I got hurt at work and it changed my life. Every aspect of my life, I was diagnosed with depression. I would like to have a day where I wake up and not feel hopeless and not feel that today's the day that I need to die. They explained it to me that they're gonna shave my head and they're going to attach a frame to my skull and they're gonna put me in an MRI machine. They're going to kill tissue. They're gonna burn tissue in my brain to make it work better, to make me okay. And you realize that they use, they ablate tissue in different forms of healthcare in different surgeries often. So why not for the brain? Even, even a 5% decrease in the hopelessness or the despair, oh my goodness, that would be amazing. I could go back to work, I could be okay, I would be a, a, a good functioning member of society, things would be great. I have high hopes that things will be okay. I mean, I have fear because they're going into my brain. They're gonna be burning lesions, permanent lesions in my brain. It's scary stuff, but if it works, I can't even imagine if it works. I'm not getting my hopes up. I'm, I'm, I'm scared about tomorrow because I've been told they're far enough away from the areas of the brain that deal with speech and, and language and motor skills and reading and writing and, and any movement and, and, but that doesn't, I just, yeah, it's scary. I appreciate my care team, but I'd like to never see them again. I'd like to never need to go into a doctor's office again. That is Sky Zaslov. She was hurt on the job in 2011, and she says it changed her life, every aspect of her life. She was diagnosed with major depression, tried many treatments, medication, cognitive behavioral therapy, and talk therapy, among many others, and none seemed to work. So that's why she decided to participate in a clinical trial at Toronto Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, where doctors operated on her brain without a scalpel. Now, Greg, you mentioned before we played that audio mm -hmm. that you have uh, had issues with with depression. Uh, I, I I myself have, I, I suspect I might, and I uh, am still exploring avenues as to what I need to do to take care of myself uh, before it it consumes me. But in your case, you have help or dealt with it over the years. Right. What did you do to what therapy or helped you? Well, to, to go one step before that without taking too much time on it, uh, what really triggered it for me was a frontal lobe brain injury back in 2000. And that went undiagnosed for about 18 months. And so my personality changed. Uh, my ability to deal with stress changed. Uh, my short-term memory was dramatically affected. Object assembly 
problems were a big struggle for me. And that inability to live a normal life turned into the secondary issue for me, which was depression. And that's something that's in my family history on top of it. So uh, I was fortunate enough to work with a couple of professionals who really cared about me in order to rehabilitate my brain injury, but also talk therapy, which uh, went a long way in helping me sort out what I was going through and to rationalize and to realize that I was not going to be the person I was before my brain injury, uh, that I kind of had to move on. But that takes a lot of time. When I saw and hear Sky's story, to imagine, and you see the MRI in the in the story, and you can see that there's actually parts of her brains that are of her brain that are are, are functioning in a, in a different fashion that they're trying to affect. Um, with depression, with any sort of quote unquote invisible injury like that, half the battle is knowing what's wrong. Yep. Um, I still deal with headaches. You've been around me when I get my headaches out of the blue. I've gone for an MRI. I know that my brain is is healthy on that front, but for years I didn't know. And so sometimes it's just a matter of knowing. And most people, I think, have the strength to deal with whatever diagnosis in, is in front of them as long as there's a plan to help them deal with it. Not knowing what the treatment is, what the long-term effects of any illness, I think is way worse than the illness itself. The headline once again, Toronto researchers testing scalpel-free brain surgery to treat depression. You can find that at cjob.com as well as globalnews.ca. As we've been telling you all morning and since yesterday, Yesterday morning, just before we went off the air, uh, before 10 o'clock, Brett and I, and throughout the day on every program here on 680 CGOB, Manitoba Hydro will be getting less than half of the increase it requested for electricity rates in 2018-2019. The Manitoba Public Utilities Board has approved a 3.6% average increase in rates effective June 1st instead of the 7.9% hike originally requested. It's also ordered Hydro to create a First Nation on-reserve residential customer class in which rates will remain frozen this year. The board is recommending the province develop bill affordability programs for lower-income customers and transferring some carbon tax revenue to Hydro. province shut that down yesterday, though, the carbon tax. What does this rate increase mean for those who are already struggling to make ends meet? We are joined now live on 680 CJOB by Karen Taylor-Hughes, the Executive Director of Winnipeg Harvest. Ms. Taylor-Hughes, good morning. Good morning, and thanks for having us on to talk about this really important issue. Why is it so important? I mean, I think it might be obvious uh, at first blush, but uh, how how do you see this affecting uh, not only your organization, but your clientele? Well, for currently for our folks that are now using the food bank, we have a lot of folks who are on fixed income or on low-wage income. And as a result of that, by increasing their hydro rates, because, of course, most homes in Manitoba use hydro to heat their home as well as provide electricity. So as a result of that, they're actually having to take more money out of their pockets to pay these rate increases, which means less money to go towards food. So the decision is, do I pay my bills? Where do I put food on my table? So normally, especially in the winter months, you have to pay your heating bills. So as a result, they are using they are using having less money left over for paying for food, and that's when harvest feels the crunch because that's when our food banks across the province 
have, more, have higher increases in terms of people coming and requiring that extra to top up their food to make sure they can get through the weeks ahead. Now, have you spoken uh, to people? Have people shared their stories with how increasing costs like hydro year over year uh, make or how big of an impact that has on their food budget? Actually, that's one of the main reasons we stepped up and spoke at the Public Utility Board's hearing and supported that evidence-based process because we were talking to our food bank users, both in our, in our actual food bank, but also across the province, and the concern was overwhelming that they felt it was going to be really hard to keep up and already having a tough time making ends meet, knowing that we had increases in lots of other areas and decreases in significant areas like rent assist that provide them some relief in terms of paying their bills. So they were very concerned about how will they make their ends meet. Karen Taylor-Hughes is the Executive Director of Winnipeg Harvest, joining us this morning on Mackling McGarry. And uh, Karen, when, when you think about your operation, it's a, a massive place, Winnipeg Harvest, uh, unfortunately large, I, I suppose, to a certain extent. This will have an impact on your operations as well, I suspect. It's very true. Currently, we're at about 40,000 square feet, most of that warehouse for our food collection and distribution operation. And looking at our current March bills for our hydro, that we will see an increase in our hydro bill over the year, over $2,000. So for not-for-profit that is solely funded by donations, that's a big hit to us. So we are concerned about that as well. And when you add in other costs, because hydro is just one cost of many that we all have to deal with. And it seems week after week, uh, the price of transit is going up or the price of this or the price of gas or whatever. It's just an endless list. So this all has, I'm sure, uh, a cumulative effect. Um, How does that all add up for you? Well, for example, I think you were well aware, I think you spoke about it, spoke to one of my colleagues about the fact that we put a plea out this week for um, more resources. We get a lot of our food that comes in through the holiday season, September to December and early January. And usually this time of year, our resources are quite low at this point because people are getting ready to move into the summer season and they sometimes forget that we require food all year round for these families. So for us, looking forward to this, knowing that our, our costs will rise, their costs will rise, which means for us, it's even more important for us to gather and collect food and money and have volunteers to help us meet the ever-increasing need for Manitobans and families that need food on their tables. So we feel an obligation to reach out, and Manitobans have really responded in a way. We were, were so overwhelmed with all the outpouring. Our bins here are filled. Bins at the retail stores are all filled. So I continue to say to people, don't forget about people that need, in need. Even though the sun is shining and it's getting warmer, the jets are winning. That's fantastic, but people still need food. So we just have to work harder, work smarter, and continue to keep the population updated because we know they care, Manitobans really care, and have been really supportive. I noticed that there were bins out at uh, last night's uh, whiteout street party for Winnipeg Harvest. I hope that was fruitful for you, Karen. Yes, I have not seen the takings of that, but the True North Sports Entertainment has stepped up and we will be having, we'll be at the Whiteout Party on Thursday as well as the Moose Game on uh, Saturday and the Viewing Event Party and then hopefully for the, the series ender on Monday. So 
We are looking forward to that and reminding Manitobans a tin for the bin goes a very long way. And we're hoping that that will be something that will be huge, as well as the Bombers are opening up their season, having their fanfare um, event on Saturday as well, and we will be there also. So there's lots of ways people can donate, and uh, we really appreciate it, and it's going to good use. A terrific relationship with all the sports teams here in Winnipeg. Karen Taylor-Hughes, thank you for this. Thank you very much, and thank you, Manitoban. And continue to donate. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for the good work that you do at Winnipeg Harvest. Once again, Karen Taylor Hughes, executive director. And um, yeah, with uh, the hydro bill going up, with gas going up, with uh, all these costs, you know, it, it it's enough to cause stress to, to anyone. So mm-hmm. when you look at the lower end of the income scale, uh, that is scary when you think about, well, it's... Minus 30 in the winter, I can't not heat my home, especially if you have a family. You know, if you if it's just, like, say, for example, it was just me and it was cold, I could probably, you know, deal with that. But if I had kids, then that's a completely different story. You got you to gotta pay the bill, but then you're suffering from your food. So uh, this is, uh, the impact of this kind of stuff is uh, far-reaching. Without question. And uh, I always wondered what it would be like to have to, Look at your hydro bill and or another invoice, something for your kids, and go. You know, the one for my kids is going to have to go unpaid. Yeah, it's got it's got to be heartbreaking for people. Brett, I don't know if you saw it anywhere on social media last night. The Richardson Building last night with the with the bat signal like jet logo up in the lights, kind of panning across the. The, the 30 plus story building at Portage, Maine was kind of a neat effect uh, at the end of last night's game. It was really cool. Yeah, it's just every 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 game, something new pops up. We mm-hmm. saw the big goal light, the, the bat signal, as you call it. Yeah, I'm curious to see what they'll come up with next. It'll be uh, it'll be really interesting to see if this uh, continues the way Dennis sees it. I want to read this email real quick before we move on. Fantastic comeback last night, starting to join the pantheon of 80s playoff memories. Coach Maurice made a brilliant move with the top two lines, switching up Nikolai Ehlers and Kyle Connor. And uh, don't forget the intangible of having assistant coach Charlie Huddy, who was a member of the Oilers back in the 80s, Brett. Behind our bench, we finally got an Oiler on our side of the ice in May. And he says, this is very important. Just need to win every home game until June, and we'll be drinking out of the cup at Portage and Maine. Dennis, I love your emails, love your passion. Send them anytime. GMAC at CGOB.com or Brett at CGOB.com. While you may be looking forward to having July 1st off to celebrate Canada's birthday, many retailers are not in the same boat because Canada Day falls on a Sunday. Retailers in Manitoba must close down July 2nd. Retailers can stay open on Sunday, Canada Day if they choose, but the Retail Council of Canada is urging the province to change the laws. So to tell us more about this, we're joined by John Graham, Director of Government Relations, Prairie Region for the Retail Council of Canada, joins us live on 680 CJOB. John Graham, good morning to you, sir. Hey, good morning, Brett. Good morning, Greg. Hey, John. Nice to speak with you, sir. This is uh, bizarre, to say the least, I think, in a lot of people's mind, that you'd be allowed to be open on a holiday, 9 to 6, modified hours, and then forced to close the following day. What say you? Well, yeah, there is going to be certainly a lot of confusion around that. And and frankly, in Manitoba, because of the way Canada is, hasn't been defined as July 1st. It's getting tripped up in the way Sunday restrictions have been uh, laid out. 
So unfortunately, uh, uh, retailers who can't typically afford to close on days when they're permitted to operate for competitive reasons are going to open up July 1st, which is a day when Manitobans aren't expecting them to be open, and employees are certainly not looking to want to work and miss family opportunities. And then when everyone's returning from cottages or camp, uh, trying to shop July 2nd, uh, stores, malls, everything's going to be closed, unfortunately. Well, and it is, it's interesting to me that of all the days, of all the holidays, Canada Day is the one that that forces retailers to close because stores are, the malls are often open on, on holidays, are they not? Yeah, in Manitoba, most of Canada, you're right, there's uh, uh, much more relaxed, it's really consumer-driven hours, uh, uh, but uh, in Manitoba, uh, hours are limited in on Sundays, and we accept that. There's certainly uh, specific days like New Year's or Easter Sunday or Christmas, and, you know, Good Friday, the stores do close. Uh, Canada Day is uh, one that we're not arguing that our stores should be closed July 1st. We're just arguing that they should be closed July 1st and not July 2nd. So what is the, what is the solution here? Is this an amendment to legislation? Is it new legislation overall, or is it simply a, a ruling or or a handshake agreement uh, between uh, business owners in the province? What's what can be done here? Well, I, I don't write legislation, but uh, my complete understanding is it's just a minor tweak of the existing act uh, to to define Canada Day as July first. Uh, but to the end of the day, it's the will of uh, the government to want to make this change that only uh, occurs once every few years and the NDP to commit that they're not going to try to uh, trip up uh, the Palestine government as they try to move this minor revision through prior to this July. Well, and here's another thing that kind of sticks it to retail workers is that employees in Manitoba are not entitled to extra pay for working on July 1st this year. But they would be entitled to that pay for working on July 2nd, but your employees won't be able to take advantage of that because the stores will be closed on July 2nd. Well, you're, you're banging on, Brett. You're taking money out of uh, roughly, you know, there's 70,000 uh, retail employees across Manitoba. Let's say one in seven or 10,000 of those would have worked uh, on July 2nd. That's money directly out of their pockets. Uh, but uh, the... Uh, the, the biggest kicker is that uh, we're going to have to run our stores, and uh, on July 1st, there's going to be a number of people missing family and community celebrations around Canada Day if we don't make this change. So has the government pledged to sit down and, and to create this modification and do its best to, to get it through in time for for the Canada Day weekend? Uh, yeah, sadly, we haven't got a commitment at this point. I think, uh, again, they're looking at this as, uh, you know, a Piece of, a piece of work that uh, is minor in the greater scheme of things. We, you know, firmly disagree, and also uh, with the NDP not showing uh, a willingness to support at this point. I think they're giving that some consideration. Uh, it's caught up in politics, unfortunately, at the impact of uh, both retail businesses and those employees. Sometimes holidays are great shopping days. Of course, you, you mentioned Boxing Day, but is Canada Day? even worthwhile for stores to be open? Uh, Canada Day uh, is a, it, it was a day where most Canadians, most Manitobans will be doing community uh, activities. Whether, again, we're, we're not proposing that we be open Canada Day. We're proposing, in fact, that we be legislated to close Canada Day, July 1st. But July 2nd is, a, is an important retail day. People come back, they're gearing up for the week. Uh, and um, you know, it's a, a loss of business for sure. 
John Graham, we appreciate the access and uh, for outlining this uh, bizarre situation, uh, an idiosyncrasy, shall we call it, in the legislation uh, with regard to retailing in Manitoba. Thank you. Thanks so much. In the 1980s, researchers at Winnipeg's Children's Hospital started to discover the trend between type 2 diabetes and Indigenous youth. Now, typically, type 2 diabetes is restricted to much older people. The book Diagnosing the Legacy, the Discovery, Research, and Treatment of Type 2 Diabetes in Indigenous Youth is the story of communities, researchers, and doctors. Through dozens of interviews, author Larry Krotz shows the impact of the disease on the lives of individuals and families. The book also looked at the challenges faced by caregivers in diagnosing and then responding to this disease, especially in communities far removed from the medical personnel and facilities available in the city. The author of this book, Larry Krotz, is in studio along with Dr. Heather Dean, who is a retired pediatric endocrinologist at Children's Hospital in Winnipeg and Professor Emeritus at the University of Manitoba. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, This is, I think, a situation... A lot of folks in Manitoba are aware of in the broad sense, is that fair to say, Dr. Dean, that we know that part of the epidemic of type 2 diabetes, a lot of it lies within the Indigenous community. Absolutely, Greg. Thanks very much. And uh, it's almost so much that it's accepted as it's just there. I, I think there's I think there's some legitimacy to that statement is that be, it almost justifies us ignoring the problem to a certain extent. Well, and that's one of the reasons why I think the book is so important and, and delighted that Larry took on the challenge to, to bring all these stories together. Because when we first started seeing type 2 diabetes in children, it was, oh, no, what's this? In fact, no one even believed us in the beginning that it was truly type 2 because children only have type 1 diabetes, also known in the community as juvenile diabetes. And it's a life-threatening disease. So how could children be getting type 2 diabetes? And so it's like the community of researchers and physicians want to treat it just like adults. And we all know as pediatricians that children are not small adults, and therefore we had a brand new concern and issue on our hands. And it led to a whole 30 years of figuring out that this was not something that should have happened and that, in fact, we can't normalize it. Um, To normalize it is unconscionable. This is, uh, we've learned, one of the legacies of the whole um, colonial system and, and social structures that have been imposed. Larry Krantz is our other guest. He is a writer and filmmaker, and he put this book together, Diagnosing the Legacy, the Discovery, Research, and Treatment of Type 2 Diabetes in Indigenous Youth. And Larry, your career, you've explored the ways uh, actions, uh, our humanity's actions affect our world. Uh, You've written five books, including Piecing the Puzzle, the Genesis of AIDS Research in Africa. What led you to tackle this subject? Well, I was told that Heather had a story to tell, <laughs> and, and I came to it as a as a reporter, um, uh, knowing hardly anything about diabetes, but knowing something about Manitoba and about about the North, uh, and uh, uh, it turned out to be a, a, an incredible privilege to to meet the people both the, the, the people who were involved as, as clinicians and researchers and all the, also the communities and families that are struggling with this. 
uh, over the over the couple of years that it took it took to put this book together. Uh, 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 it's a story that didn't turn out to be. I, I thought I'd be writing a kind of a straightforward medical history, uh, and in part. It is that, as Heather said, uh, this is something that that started unraveling for them or unfolding for them in the ni- back in the 1980s. But it's a story that doesn't end. Uh, in fact, it's 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 a story with uh, uh, a great deal of challenge still ahead. Well, just to jump off and use Larry's uh, talking point there as a jumping off point to the next point. This, the beginning. Are, are we really starting to understand this? And is it genetic? Is it a genetic situation? Is it a diet situation? Or a horrible combination of both, Dr. Dean? Well, Greg, it's really become clear, and there's mounting scientific evidence of the, the biological changes that can occur um, to the bodies as they adapt to repeated stressful circumstances. In this situation, um, it's not just as simple as saying diet and exercise. There's so much other stress related to um, the chronic situations that our families find themselves in, particularly poverty and um, uh, limited education. But those, those, so many people in our province in particular that are working day in, day out with communities and the communities themselves to feel strong, to get back to that confidence. And those are the changes that will make the difference rather than a a pill or an insulin or just healthy food at the far end. Um, And so we yes, we've got a long way to go. And the medical model of, of management and treatment is changing slowly to recognize where this all came from and try to address it in that way rather than just a pill at the end. And uh, that is absolutely critical, but we do have a long way to go. How much uh, does alcohol have to do with the onset of the type 2 diabetes? Nothing that we know of. It's another um, uh, struggles with alcohol and and substance abuse are, again, one of those legacies of trying to adapt in a maladaptive way to the chronic stress and situation. Uh, Those are the stories that the elders have told me. I remember one of the very first years when I was spent uh, trying to understand this and going up north, um, the elders sat me down and said, we don't cut our wood anymore. And to me, that was a very profound statement in a very large context. Uh, And this was a journey for me in particular of finding truth and then starting my own reconciliation process with the communities to understand uh, where this has come from in terms of of, uh, structural changes and um, social structures that have led to this. So if societal changes and societal norms have changed over the time for for Indigenous uh, individuals in northern Canada – and northern Manitoba in particular. Larry, is this something that you see in the other books that you've read, that that these changing societal norms uh, play effect in terms of, uh, of disease uh, taking hold in certain communities and certain populations? Well, yeah, very much so. I mean, the, the, uh, uh, the people who are, who are, who are most uh, uh, affected by type 2 diabetes across, across the world are, are indigenous populations. Uh, whether it's in, in in Micronesia or whether it's uh, you know uh, uh, Indian nations in the United States or in indigenous people in Canada, these are people who, in a very short period of time, have moved from one kind of 
lifestyle with everything that goes with it, uh, culture and diet and all of this, uh, to something radically different. And uh, uh, with, with all kinds of all kinds of pressures on them, and this is this is this is showing up as as the as the byproduct of that. What what's interesting though is uh, that I, I, I'd like to make sure to mention today is is the some of the adaptations that that the communities who are under stress are 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 undertaking. I spent a lot of time at at the Island Lake communities for for researching this book. In the last few years, in response to what's going on. They're growing gardens. They're raising chickens. They've opened gym, a gymnasium, uh, not just for the kids, but for all the adults in the in the community. Uh, the hockey rink is is up and running after several at Garden Hill after several years of of of, of not functioning, with nothing but healthy snacks offered. Uh, so those kinds of those kinds of responses are 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 an, an, an interesting part of this story. And unfortunately, that is all the time we have. But we do thank you very much to both of you. Larry Crotz, the author of the book, Diagnosing the Legacy, the Discovery, Research, and Treatment of Type 2 Diabetes in Indigenous Youth. And Dr. Heather Dean, retired pediatric endocrinologist or diabetes specialist at Children's Hospital in Winnipeg and Professor Emeritus at the University of Manitoba. The book launch tonight, 7 o'clock, Grant Park, McNally Robinson in the atrium. Thank you again for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Winnipeg's largest urban market is once again holding a pop-up event at Hudson's Bay. Their last event a few months ago was an overwhelming success with many attendees waiting in line to get in. In fact, uh, you might have seen about 20,000 people or so in line downtown Winnipeg last night. Yep. They were not there for the Whiteout Street Party. They're in line for <laughs> Third and Bird. That was tweeted out by someone very clever and someone we couldn't agree with more. And uh, joining us in studio now uh, to talk about Third and Bird's market this weekend is Shandra Kremsky, and she is such a great friend of uh, the program. Always exciting to see you, Shandra. Thanks for this, and congratulations on what I'm sure is going to be another smashing success. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're really looking forward to it, and with all the excitement and the momentum with the Jets and Wine Festival going on, like there's just so much reason to be downtown and to enjoy, you know, getting out of the house. <laughs> So for those who are unfamiliar with Third and Bird, uh, and it's getting a bigger, you know, it's becoming like it was big news, the, the lineups that you had last time. But what is Third and Bird? Yeah, so Third and Bird is an urban market where we gather 140 of Winnipeg's best and most talented makers, anywhere from pottery, homeware, kids, guy, dude stuff, uh, great food. We put it all together um, in the Hudson's Bay downtown. We use 80,000 square feet of the basement. And it's just a great event where you can just come out and shop and just explore and um, discover some really, really neat makers here in the city. Well, when you imagine that amount of floor space dedicated to local crafters, local entrepreneurs, that's what gets Brett and I excited. We say it every time you're on the program, but it bears repeating and it's, and, and it's a worthwhile thought that... When you support local, when you buy local, uh, the impact on the economy is is measurable, I suppose, on some level, but I think on other levels, it's immeasurable, Chandra. Absolutely. Like, you're supporting um, 
families by doing that. And it's only just, it's, it's great for Winnipeg, right? It's an event where it gathers people around. We had over 14,000 people at our last market. How many? 14,000 people at our wow. last market. And uh, yeah, it's just, it brings the community together. You're getting all different walks of life uh, downtown. And um, yeah, our vendors do really, really well. And many of them have had jobs in the past where they were engineers, school teachers, you name it. And now that this is, this is their full-time job, uh, doing something creative. And uh, that's all thanks to Winnipeg supporting uh, our markets and these events. Now, lots of people have been to a flea market in the past. With all due respect to those that have been, those that put on the... This is not a flea market. Absolutely not. We, we truly call this an event. Like, you can come and you can eat. Like, we've got great restaurants like Stella's, Chosabi... We got Sheepdog Coffee, Popcart. We got a bar where you can get a beer or a glass of wine and you can walk around with it. We have a DJ playing music. So all the sights, the sounds, everything is coming into full effect. And so it's not a craft sale. It's not a flea market. It's it's truly an event. This is happening Friday uh, from 3 until 8.30 p.m., Saturday, 10 until 5. Now, last time for the Christmas market, uh, the people were waiting for quite a while to get in. Had you ever seen that kind of uh, attendance before? We have not seen that kind of attendance before. That was, that was truly record-breaking. Um, but we had an amazing team of staff and volunteers. And uh, believe it or not, even though the line was long, there was never like people didn't have to wait longer than 15, 20 minutes, which I know sounds crazy, but it's so worth it's so worth it. And now it is slowly starting to warm up. And so hopefully the wait's not too bad and you can just enjoy the the fresh air. Shonda Kremsky joining us here from Third and Bird. I want to want to get your opinion on this. We, we've seen the what the Jets are doing in terms of these street parties, people yeah. flocking to downtown. We see it on at all sorts of celebrations. Uh, pick your festival. There are only half a dozen to choose from when people flock to the downtown. And when you have these incredible markets, people come downtown. Does it not highlight the fact that if you create something that is appealing to consumers, the geography of downtown is as appealing as anywhere, maybe even more so. I think that's a great point. Absolutely. Like when you create something that people are excited about, um, there's that draw and that need to be there and to be a part of that. And I think that's what's so special about this market, you know, moving it to downtown and becoming, you know, Winnipeg's urban market um, and even reuse like using the Hudson's Bay downtown and kind of bringing life back to this gorgeous historic building and taking over the 80,000 square feet of the basement. It's just, it is magical. And the transformation in that basement is just unreal. Is it enough room? You know what? We are using every square inch of that (laughs) space. Um, Sure. Is there room to expand? Absolutely. But I think what makes it so special and unique is that it is juried and it is curated. So you really, truly are getting the best of each category when you're shopping there. And uh, I'm going to be at the the what do you call it the the early the, bird the early bird pre shop yeah it's our sold out event on Thursday I'm excited to see you and do I can I use debit or is it cash only uh, you most of our vendors take a credit card using that little Square app uh, some still do cash but uh, we have an ATM there which 
is our second largest lineup. We always joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come prepared. Are you come prepared? Now, this is a very important question. I need I, I need the goods on this. Is the malt stop still open in the basement at the uh, at the bay? Because that was a popular place for lots of us of certain vintage to to uh, get a snack uh, once upon a time. The vintage, the the what is it? The ba- the Gen X and the baby boomers. Right? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it's not there anymore. These millennials don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. A, a chocolate malted and a hot dog from the malt stop was the best way to to end any visit yeah. to downtown. You know what? I can get one of the two for you. Really? We have a hot a gourmet hot dog vendor this year. He's more. Oh. <laughs> Keep talking Keep like talking. this. His name is the Crab Apple Tree, and he's this amazing chef here, and he's an up and coming, and he makes these incredible gourmet hot dogs. And yes, for those people who are vegetarian and vegan, he's appealing to that market too. Um, and then the next best thing I can do for you, we have Popcart and uh, uh, coming out and they have popsicles and uh, black market ice cream. So you're going to have okay. close to your malt, but not not quite there. Sounds but good. It's, I'll bring my own little bullet and I'll put yeah. that little ice cream in it. I got a plan. I have a plan. I, a plan. a plan. I do. I know. I know. <laughs> your plan's going to be go to the, the, the bar first, get your hot dog, mm-hmm. have your ice cream, and then go blow a bunch of money, right? See, in two years, see how well you've come to know me? <laughs> yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> and you haven't even made one comment about her Ontario accent. She's doing a very good job of becoming Manitoban. I, <laughs> I love it, Chandra. I'm channeling my inner Winnipeg here. I'm trying to not bust out the A's, my my strong A, Chandra. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thirdandbirdevents.com is the website and uh, social media plugs as well. Absolutely. Come check us out on um, Instagram, Third and Bird, and then Twitter and Facebook as well as Third and Bird. All right, Chandra, thank you so much for joining us. Chandra Kremsky, one of the operators, founders of Third and Bird. Again, the market is tomorrow. Uh, The early bird is tomorrow. The main market is Friday, 3 to 8.30, and then Saturday, 10 to 5 at the Hudson's Bay downtown. Mackling McGarry with you on this, what's turned into an absolutely gloriously sunny Wednesday, expecting the possibility of uh, maybe some rain showers later on, but that's only a possibility Soak up the sun. Beautiful day. Can't wait uh, for tomorrow night. Lots of people looking ahead to uh, game four. Jets, Predators, just a reminder so that you can adjust your schedule appropriately. Lots of text messages coming in. I think this is taking some people by surprise, Brett. 830 is puck drop for that game uh, tomorrow night, and it's likely to be 10 to 15 minutes later than that. So, uh do with the information what you will. McNally Robinson and the Winnipeg International Writers Festival are presenting their collaborative Spring Literary Series. We just heard at 845 about a book launch for diagnosing the legacy, the discovery, research, and treatment of type 2 diabetes in Indigenous youth. That launches tonight. Tomorrow night, there will be a double book launch. Susanna Shaled's Most Dramatic Ever, The Bachelor, and Andrew Batterhill's Mary... Bang, kill. Andrew joins us now live on 680 CJOB. Mr. Batterhill, good morning to you, sir. Hi, how are you? Doing very well. Very well indeed. So, Mary Bang, kill. What's that? What's it about? All right, so Mary Bang, kill is my second novel, um, and it's a crime thriller um, set on Quadra Island in British Columbia. And, uh, yeah, it's about a 
a uh, street mugger who uh, makes a mistake and steals a computer that he shouldn't, and uh, then kind of a, just a everyone everyone chasing him kind of. So he steals the wrong laptop, I bet. Yes, it belongs to the daughter of a uh, high-ranking member of a unnamed for legal and uh, scary reasons, uh, criminal motorcycle gang. So, Andrew, uh, Battershill, is it Battershill or Batters Hill? I'm sorry, I had a typo in front of me. Batters Hill. Okay, very good. Yeah, there was an S missing, so I didn't get a chance to clear that up with you beforehand, so I do apologize. I'm sure a lot of people probably ask you a lot, uh, what does the title mean? But I'm actually more curious to know, what or is it hard to come up with a title for a book. You put all these words on the page, but then you got to have a catchy title. <laughs> Four words to summarize oh, it yeah, all. yeah, for sure. Yeah. The title's always a pretty uh, difficult thing. Uh, I, I mean, I generally, for both my books, I've gone through like four or five titles of varying degrees of awfulness before we... <laughs> Uh, end up settling on the on the final one. Yeah, you know, this self-loathing seems to be a common uh, refrain and a common characteristic of authors that we we speak to uh, from time to time. Uh, why why do you do this? How much do you love it, and how much do you hate it at the very same time? Oh, I'd say probably just lots of both. Um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, I've always loved reading, and um, yeah, it's just it's fun to be creative and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing about writing, I think, is that um, as a as a like job ish, is that uh, it's job-ish. really really fun to write. <laughs> but it's uh, you know the actual sort of like career side is a little bit more uh, difficult. It sounds as though being a, a book writer and an author is uh, not dissimilar to being in radio. A, a job ish. Yeah, I think it's yeah, pretty, pretty similar. Yeah. So your first novel, uh, Pillow, that's that was long listed for the 2016 Giller Prize, and then uh, something as well called the the Sunburst Award. Uh, the, the the whole bunch of accolades for that. Maybe tell us a little bit about that book. Sure. So Pillow was uh, also a crime thriller, um, and it was about a retired professional boxer named Pillow. That that solves the title for me there. And um, yeah, and it basically just about him sort of in another sort of uh, plot, but basically the the criminal organization he worked for was all made up of uh, French surrealists um, of the 20s. It was kind of the gimmick of that book. Um, yeah. nope. Go ahead, Greg, sorry. No, i just noticing that, you know, living uh, on Quadra Island, that's one mm-hmm. thing. Um, writer in residence at the Regina Public Library. Yes. Tell us about that gig. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I'm actually just winding that down right now. My last day is the 30th of May. Um, but yeah, that's a, basically just a job where I uh, show up at the library and uh, once a week I hold office hours where I help people out from from uh, the library um, with manuscripts or like books they're working on. And so that then, requires uh, actually being in Regina is kind of what yeah, I'm getting I'm at? I'm in Regina right now. I'm oh, you're in Regina right Regina. now. Okay, yeah, yeah, my yeah. condolences. That's <laughs> yeah, all good. I, I like it. It's sunny now, you know. So do you can, um, do you go back and forth from Vancouver, or are you are you just no, stationed I, I, in Regina? Yeah, I mean the so the term is September to May. So we've been here since uh, August, and yeah, going to leave the end of May. 
And I'm teasing you, of course. You wouldn't know this. It's a little bit of inside baseball, but I have a not-so-secret love affair, in quotation marks, with Saskatchewan. Uh, so I give Saskatchewan uh, a hard time at every turn. It's mostly over jealousy of their uh, incredible uh, entrepreneurship and the things that are going on in Saskatchewan right now. They seem to be getting a lot of things right. Lots of talent in Saskatchewan and in Regina as it pertains to uh, authoring and, and, and writing books. Yeah, there's there's actually yeah, there's quite a, a good community. I mean, they have really good um, arts funding in Saskatchewan relative to like the number of people that live here. Um, so yeah, there's a pretty healthy community in both Regina and Saskatoon of writers and stuff like that. And what are your thoughts on uh, just sort of the state of uh, publishing in general? We we speak to uh, the proprietors at McNally Robinson quite often on this show. And it seems to us that there's been almost, uh, I don't know if we want to say renewed, but uh, that's how it appears to me, just on, on my own observation, a renewed interest in in reading, particularly reading physical books, right? Because there was a, a run on e-readers yeah. for a time, and now people seem to be turning away from those. So what do you what do you think about the where books are at right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that right now it's a, it's a pretty interesting time. Like, I think you're, what you're picking up on is, is what kind of is... is happening where yeah like the sort of um books as like an easy consumer product <laughs> that like ebooks that you would just sort of buy um randomly it is not what it used to be obviously but there's been a pretty big uptick in sort of i guess you'd call it like a more like active book consumership so people going to independent bookstores like mcnally robinson and buying physical books and kind of um, taking more of an interest in sort of like keeping the culture of books alive seems to be what's happening now more so than like, uh, yeah, like back when they were trying to get, make e-readers happen, like e-readers are going like our <laughs> sales on those are plummeting and, but independent bookstores are actually having a bit of a bit of an uptick. So that's, that's encouraging. Give us a little bit of a root and toot for, uh, the folks at McNally Robinson, one of the very special places in our city, uh, independent yeah. bookstore, of course. But we hear on a consistent basis from authors from across the country that that come and visit us here. Uh, they are one of the preeminent uh, retailers in the country. Maybe you could uh, give them a little bit of a pat on the back while we've got you on the air. Oh, yeah. I mean, McNally Robinson is obviously uh, one of the best Um bookstores in the country. Um, I actually just did a reading at the Saskatoon uh, branch, which is gorgeous. There's a tree in there. Um, yeah, but no, like the independent bookstores here, um, especially like McNally Robinson do are not only like great stores when you go in them to buy things, but also like they do work hard to kind of support Canadian publishing. Like they're in touch with, you know, Canadian publishers they do as much as they can to help uh, help them out with events and promoting, you know, Canadian books. So I think it like they do a lot, not only just as themselves as a retailer, but also in sort of trying to keep Canadian arts culture uh, rolling. Andrew Battershill is the author of Mary Bang Kill. And the book launch is tomorrow part of a double book launch, in fact, at McNally Robinson as part of the Winnipeg International Writers Festival Collaborative Spring Literary Series. And you can uh, pick up that book and you can meet Mr. Battershill tomorrow night, 730 at McNally Robinson. Andrew, thanks for joining us. It's been a pleasure. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. That's all the time we have. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg Mackling. Thanks to Behind the Glass, Jerry and Shannon Lee Vidal. And thank you for listening to CJOB. Na, 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 na.